This morning we continue this series that we've entitled Goodbye God. This series was crafted and architected and implemented due to the fact that earlier this year, in March of this year, Barna uh, released a statistical report stating that one out of four Americans today consider themselves either an agnostic or an atheist. One out of four. 25% of our population in the United States of America now identifies themselves either as an atheist, one who absolutely rejects the idea of any existence of God whatsoever, or an agnostic. One who says that I don't know if God is there or not, or more classically defined as one who thinks that God is there, but he or she, in their opinion, is unknowable. But it is the second qualifier of that statistic that concerned me even more. That out of that 25%, two-thirds of them indicated that at one time or another... They, ended, they identified themselves as Christian. And they no longer do so. They no longer identify themselves as a Christian. Two-thirds of that 25% at one time called themselves a Christian, but they no longer do. This 25% has been given the category of skeptic. A skeptic is a person who is inclined to question or to doubt all accepted opinions as they now currently identify themselves as either an agnostic or an atheist. When they were asked why they left the Christian faith, they gave three definitive reasons that we have been addressing in our times together. Number one, they no longer believe that the Bible can be trusted as the Word of God. And we responded to that. We replied to that objection by demonstrating the evidence behind the Bible, the history behind the Bible, and the supernatural element of the Bible. And we did so in a manner that we believe could be accessible to anyone who is listening to those rebuttals. Their second objection is the one we are currently dealing with now in our third session together, and that is they don't believe in the integrity of the church. They believe that the church is currently irrelevant in the fabric of our nation and our society and our culture. Who needs church anymore? Their last objection, which we'll deal with next week, is that the world appears to oppose the Christian faith and has done an adequate, if not excellent, job in explaining it away. Is that true? We will address that next time together. Now understand that these two-thirds of, these, of this 25% have come to these objections based upon their own experiences and their own perceptions of the church. This is their experience. This is their perceptions that have led them to these conclusions. So we then have to ask ourselves, if we are going to engage this group properly, how do we overcome their experiences? How do we overcome their perspectives? 
And each time we have looked at that, we've had to approach it a little differently each and every time. Because an individual's perception that often is based, if not mostly based, on their own personal experience would dictate to that individual what is true and what is false. My experience has been this, and that is their truth based upon experience that has created a conclusion that has now become their perception. How do you get past that? How do you breach that divide? And that is one of the questions that we have been looking to answer in each one of our sessions. When it came to the Bible, we felt that pursuing the course of action of education was the best way to bridge that gulf. Showing them and demonstrating to them the historical accuracy, the evidence behind our Bible, and the supernatural elements of the Word of God. Maybe they've never been exposed to that information before. Maybe they've never been, uh, it's never been articulated and laid out before them in a, in a method or a systematical way that allows them to comprehend the information that is being given. But when it comes to the second objection, the irrelevancy of the church, it does appear that as time continues, the church is playing less and less of a role within our society. We could fault those individuals who have concluded that the church is irrelevant based upon their experiences and their perceptions, but we would be approaching that particular subject inaccurately. It is not them in whom we have to deal with. It is us in whom we have to deal with. Today, many Christians go to church and not even understand why they are going to church or the importance of it. They don't know what church is, let alone the purpose of church. They go because this is something that Christians do, but I don't really know why I'm sitting here. I really don't know why I'm coming here. And today, many Christians have stopped coming altogether. I can do church at home. I've got the internet. I can listen to any pastor from any place around the world at any time at my home. I can do church. I don't have to worry about traveling. I don't have to get ready early in the morning. I can sleep in on Sundays. And they feel completely justified. An individual who has come to that conclusion, in my opinion, my humble opinion, has no idea what the church is and what the purpose of the church is. They missed it. Did they miss it, or were they never explained it? So the first session together, we looked at educating the church to help us understand why we are here, and we looked at what the church is. And we found five things that the Bible clearly calls the church. I'll quickly read them for you. We are the people of God, we are the body of God, we are the building of God, we are the bride of God, we are the family of God. And we moved through each one of those five quickly in demonstrating how they work and why it is important then to be active in your local church. But being active without knowing the purpose of the church is, is uh, it's just simply wrong, 
It's like I'm doing something, but I have no idea why I'm doing it. Now, we told you what the church is, but now you need to know what the purpose of the church is. And when I talk about purpose, I'm talking about the reason for which something is done or with which something exists. I am fully convinced that if we were to do a man-on-the-street type of thing, Daniel and I going out, him with the camera, me interviewing people, and if I were to stand outside of a church... And I would ask the congregants who are coming out, be this church maybe or any other church, and I ask 10 different congregation members, what is the purpose of the church? I will guarantee you that I'll probably get 10 different answers. And the most of them would be wrong, I bet. I'm not the only one who feels this way. John MacArthur wrote in his book, people have all kinds of ideas about the church and about what makes churches and why churches should exist, if we are to survey people in churches and ask them what is the main purpose of the church and why does the church exist, sadly, we would get wrong answers. People don't know anymore. People don't know why the church exists. What is the purpose of the church? Well, what is it? Three, three distinct purposes. They all begin with the letter E, so they're easy to remember. The exaltation of God, the edification of the saints, and the evangelization of the world. That's the purpose of the church. Clearly articulated in Scripture. But as we have discussed, one poll that was done found that out of a thousand people who attend church, 89% of those people when they were asked, why do you go to church and what is the purpose of the church, they stated this, to meet my needs and my family's needs. But when those pastors were asked of those thousand people what the purpose of the church was, they said, for the evangelization of the world. How do you get such a gross disconnect between the pastor and the congregation? And we explored that together and we discovered that because individuals don't know what the church is and they don't know what the purpose of the church is, a blank space has been left that has allowed for revision and reinvention. And we talked about this together. And you undoubtedly possibly had gone through the web and you're looking at different churches in your area and you undoubtedly probably came across one that said, such and such a church. We do church in a brand new way. Or my personal favorite is such and such a church. We're not like the church of your parents. What does that mean? They're reinventing church. Because we don't know what church is. And we don't know what the purpose of it is. So reinvention is then able to be performed. The church in America has been reinvented in five ways. We know that the foundation of the church is the person of Jesus Christ. He is it. He is the cornerstone to all things. But the church in America has been built on entertainment, emotionally moving uh, people to a ministry moment, or the church is built on corporate business plans, and they have the fastest growing market share in the area. And that simply means that more Christians are coming to their churches, their church than every other church in the area. We're not winning converts to Christ. We are simply stealing people from other churches and bringing them into ours. 
And we're growing fast at it. Yeah, that's a business plan. People are simply a means to an end. Or the, children, uh, the church is built on the principles of the world. We want to be like the world to reach the world. One of the most devastating statements that has ever been made concerning the church happened in this area back in the 1980s when a prominent pastor made that declaration at one of his pastor's conferences. He stated, we must be like the world to reach the world. I think Jesus would have a little bit to say about that, right? I don't know about you, but Jesus was radically different than everybody else. He was perfect in every way. Today the church is being built on social justice because it's easier to rally people to a cause than to Christ. Rally people to a cause rather than rallying people to Jesus Christ. A quote from a famous individual who gave her life to social justice said that it was her responsibility to allow her to minister to people of other faiths and if they are a Muslim, her job was to make them a better Muslim. If they were a Hindu, her job was to make them a better Hindu. Hey, that's not the gospel, okay? There is no other way to heaven than through Jesus Christ. None. No. Should we help people? Of course. Should we help the poor? Absolutely. Mandated in Scripture. But never, never divorced from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And lastly, church is built on tradition where traditions have now distorted any understanding of, of pure biblical doctrine. I don't know why we're doing what we're doing. This is just what we've always done. But you're painting yourself blue. I know. But this is what we've always done to glorify God. But why? I don't know. But I'm blue. Really? But there are traditions that churches hold to. They have no clue why they hold to them and why they do what they do. And yet they do it all the time. But the Bible has nothing to say about those. The messages have even been changed from looking at the Bible in its totality from Genesis to Revelation. We've moved now to topical teachings that give methodologies and formulas that play upon pragmatism rather than cultivating spiritual growth. Big difference. If we approach people with the Bible and say, okay, if you take this verse plus this verse plus this verse, this is what you're going to get. Really? Because everywhere I read in the Bible, it's very organic in nature. Terms of agriculture are used consistently to describe the work of the Word in the heart of an individual through the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, those things that we demonstrate in the flesh are called works. But what is the agricultural term used to describe the manifestation of the work of the Holy Spirit within the individual? Fruit. Agricultural term. Paul says one plants, one waters, another one gives harvest. Agricultural terms. Teach people the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and God will do the work in the people's lives. No methodology must be formulated. And I've seen poor Christians who come in who have gotten the latest book on marriage or have gotten the latest book on this or that or the other thing. They want to be a better husband. They want to be a better wife. They want to be a better parent, whatever it may be. And formulas are given that they can work through and then they apply them, but not in the power of the Spirit. They apply them in and of their own ability. And when they fail, 
This is when you get these kind of statements. I've gotten them numerous times. I've tried Christianity. It just didn't work for me. You know what? Christianity is not here to work for you. Christianity is to allow us to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, and we are here to serve Him. So we've emphasized method over means. Last week we took a look at the reasons that so many object to the church. And it is the issues of leadership resembling more of the Pharisees of the Bible rather than that of Jesus Christ. Modern day leadership demonstrating corruption, hypocrisy, self-righteousness, elitism, being blind guides, intellectualism mean that they've mastered the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of God. They relish in, in the celebrity status uh, and they, they're controlling and they're indifferent to the needs of the people. Yeah, that sums up a lot of leaders today. And a lot of people don't understand why they're having such poor experience with these leaders. It's because all of those attributes are clearly found and discovered in the Pharisees of the New Testament. And the reason I bring that up is because there's a contrast that all four Gospels give us to leadership. It is the Pharisees on one side, in this corner, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the scribes. In this corner, we have a 33-year-old Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. And think about how radically different both of these are to one another. Jesus was without corruption. He was perfectly sincere, meaning that he was pure. He was righteous. He was approachable. He was true. He was filled with the wisdom of God. He was a humble servant, a caring shepherd, a compassionate leader. This is radically different than what we see in the, in the number of churches in America today. But then we have problems with the laity also. The laity are no longer coming to church because they desire to commune and to worship God, to be edified, to exalt Him, and to prepare to evangelize their world. They've become consumers. I'm going to go to the church that gives me the most bang for my buck. The church needs to meet my needs and the needs of my family. Don't ask me to do anything. Don't ask me to get involved. Don't ask me to serve. I want to be served. Think how radically different that is then from Jesus. In fact, I think I read somewhere that he said, I have not come to be served, but to serve. Correct me if I'm wrong. The whole mentality of so many today is so backwards that we've missed this incredible opportunity that we have before us. Now this addressed most of the issues of the objections of the skeptics from this report. I'm going to read these objections to you quickly. From the actual report that Barner released, he says, Churches have done little to convince skeptics to reevaluate their position. In fact, because more than two thirds of skeptics have attended Christian churches in the past, most uh, for an extended period of time, their dismissal of God, the Bible, and churches is not uh, theoretical in nature. Most skeptics think of Christian churches as, and I'll give you their objections. Number one, Groups of people who share a common physical space and have some common religious views, but are personally uh, not connected in each 
in each other's lives in a meaningful or a life-changing way. Number two, organizations that add little, if any, value to their communities. Their greatest value stems from the limited times they serve the needy in their community. And number four, and I skipped three for a purpose, they are led by people who have not earned their position of influence by proving their love of humankind and thus not deserving of our trust. Now I believe that we've addressed the three that I just read in our last session. They're objecting to the faulty leadership and they're objecting to the faulty laity of the church. This morning I want to get to the one that is probably the most troubling and the most difficult of them all. And I'm actually going to put it up behind us so we can read it together. Their third objection reads as follows. Organizations that stand for the wrong things. Wars, preventing gay marriage and a woman's freedom to control her body. Sexual and physical violence perpetrated on people by religious authority figures. Mixing religious beliefs with political policy and action. When I am faced with an objection like this, Again, we must consider how we should reply to this objection. Maybe you already are remembering scenarios in your own personal life as you began to interact with people, share the gospel with people, talk about your church with people, talk about your Christian faith with people. An objection similar to these or one of these has been posed to you. How do you reply to such an objection? How do you respond to such an objection? Well, I will tell you that in my experience being a Christian now for almost 30 years, I got saved when I was two. No. Just wanted to see if everybody was listening. No, it was actually four. Anyway, uh, no. Over the last 30 years, though, these objections are no longer sincere objections, they are wrapped in antagonism today. There's a frustration, there's an anger within people over these issues and towards Christianity. All you have to do is watch the major news sources to get a glimpse of that frustration. Commentators debating amongst themselves between the liberal factions and the conservative factions. There is an antagonism that is now wrapping or encasing this objection. Now when these objections are raised by people, they are raised by people based on their personal perspective and their personal experience. Knowing that they and us are looking at the exact same scenario and coming to two radically different conclusions. So I pose the question to you this morning. Faced with such an objection, how would you respond? How would you reply or give a rebuttal to that objection? The very first thing that we have to understand is that the Bible is clear on many of these issues and does not allow us to compromise on these issues, which I'm afraid is the first tactic that many 
Christians are now applying to this scenario. Now, what do I mean by compromise? I'm not saying that they themselves are actively involved in these things. I'm not saying that they necessarily agree with the individual in whom they are speaking with. But the compromise comes in the form of a non-response. Now, you may think that that's a little too harsh. Really. Think about this for a moment. Our mandate from the Scriptures is that we be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came and He began to His public ministry, He he began with an announcement. First it was repent. But then He began to say the kingdom of God is at hand. This is it. And from that point, now for 2,000 years, individuals have been coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God is being populated. And God purchased back the fallen creation through the death, burial, and resurrection of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Are we meant not to fight these battles? That is the first course of action that I find many Christians are now implementing in these conversations. I'm just not going to go there. I'm not even going to engage these objections. Now, I certainly believe that there's a way to do it with tact, with love, with kindness, with mercy. I'm certainly not advocating that we throw fire on an open flame because we are not going to reach our objective, and that is rebuttaling our position and giving them something to chew on and to consider. That's my goal with a skeptic. When I engage skeptics, I like to bring them to a point where they have to take a moment of pause and truly think about what is being said. It is at that moment that they are considering that I ask the Holy Spirit just to work on their hearts. But I want that opportunity. I want that moment. I want to be intellectual. I want to be smart about how I approach this. This is the shot. This is the opportunity that God has given me. I don't take it lightly. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Many Christians are saying, I just don't want to fight that battle any longer. Well, that tactic has been implemented, and today I think we see that what we have sown, we are now currently reaping. Christians have developed a subculture within our community that was meant to be a a place where they come, they are taught, they are edified, they are prepared, and then they go back into the main culture. What's happening today is Christians are just staying in the subculture. I'm not even going to go to the world. I I want to interact with the world as little as possible. That's absolutely different than what Paul advocated, what Jesus did, and what the apostles did. Absolutely different. This subculture that we have in our community, that we can surround ourselves by our Christian friends, we can surround ourselves by our Christian media, we can surround ourselves um, with people of our choosing and avoid everybody else. But I ask you, is that Christianity? Is that the Christianity displayed throughout the book of Acts and throughout the Bible itself? And the answer is no. We need to have our subculture that we can go back into our culture and engage these people and talk with these people. And we needed to do it as Paul would, as Peter would, as John would, and especially as Jesus would. So how do we do it? First, we must understand where these people are coming from. 
Because as I stated, you and I and they are looking at the exact same scenario, whatever the cultural issue may be, if it's gay marriage or if it is abortion or whatever it is, we're looking at it from two different perspectives. We're looking at the exact same thing from two different perspectives coming to two radically opposing conclusions. Would we all agree with that? For example, when it comes to gay marriage, the world's position is, how can love be wrong? What harm is there in allowing such marriages to take place? Shouldn't everybody have the same rights? And, you know, or they say, why should we discriminate against any demographic? For this group of individuals is just another minority in the graph of demographics that we find here in the United States. And from the world's point of view, these are extremely effective arguments. But from a Christian point of view, they're devastating. I believe that when God created all things, and I do believe God created all things, after his creation, he looked at it, and what did he say? Uh, technically, in the Hebrew, it's all good, man. This is awesome. And people are, you know, how could God ever create all of this in six days? That's impossible. And I, and I sometimes have fun with them, and I like to say, you know what, that kind of stumbles me too. Really? I'm glad you agree with me because there's no way that any of this could have been done in six days. I said, yeah, the six-day thing really surprises me too. I'm glad we agree. Oh, I don't agree at all. You think it took billions of years? Oh, yes, it had to. It had to. I said, I'm surprised it took God so long. Let's be honest. He's God, right? He didn't need six days. He was taking his time. He could have done it instantaneously. Everything, all at one time. So why are we looking at things so differently? We are looking at things so radically different from those in the world because of what we look through to interpret what we are looking at. It's called a worldview. They have their worldview. We have our worldview. And we're looking at everything differently, though we are looking at the exact same thing. World's views contain two elements, presumptions and pre-understandings. The world has formulated their worldview based upon the context of all that is natural, and they have formulated presumptions and pre-understandings. You and I, well, we formulated them a little differently, haven't we? In fact, after becoming a Christian, how many people here would raise their hand and say, yeah, after I became a Christian, my worldview changed? Yeah, you have to think that way. Because we're looking through the lens of Scripture. It used to be clarified as a secular worldview and a Christian worldview, but I can't use Christian worldview any longer because it means something different to people who hear it. There is a liberal version of a Christian worldview that wants to be more accommodating to the uh, changes in our society that we believe the Bible doesn't allow us to compromise upon. 
So I want to say a biblical worldview. They are looking at it from their perspective. We are looking at it from our perspective. And as one person wrote in his book, and I want to put this up here for you to look at, the definition of a worldview world is this. In the broadest sense, a worldview is the standard by which an individual consciously or unconsciously interprets all data so as to maintain a consistent and coherent understanding of the whole of reality. A worldview acts like a filter that in, its, that in it, it screens and analyzes and categorizes all information so that we can make sense out of the world. It is the frame of reference from which we discern truth from falsehood, making rational decisions and formulating ethical and religious values. Worldviews are made up of certain presuppositions or assumptions, and I'd like to add pre-understandings, that an individual believes to be true. This is what we are absolutely contending with when it comes to perception. Again, we look at the, this new alternative style of marriage. The world doesn't understand why we're confined to a biblical standard of marriage, which is always consistent between a man and a woman. Theologically, the marriage is so significant to God that it represents God's relationship through, to His creation through the person of Jesus Christ. Huge! And any augmentation or distortion of that truth distorts the actual gospel itself. My objection from a biblical perspective is a theological one, and I believe God clearly created marriage, and He created marriage between a man and a woman. Secondly, when it comes to an issue like abortion, the world looks at the woman's right to choose, don't they? We look at the life that is inside, don't we? Looking at the same event from two different perspectives, our worldview then leads us to consider this particular subject differently. When a woman can see that it is not simply a fetus within her, but a child, a living child, then they have to take a moment of step back to say, what am I doing and can I proceed? Again, the worldview of those in the world is based upon their experiences and their perceptions that they gain through the world. Ours as Christians are found in the Word of God. Let me read this scripture to you. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, this is Paul writing, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Listen to what he says next. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the what? The renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We think differently as Christians, because now we are seeing God's creation through the lens of Scripture. And so many have said to me, I try with my friends. I, write, I reason with them. I work with them. I use all kinds of different analogies to hopefully uh, show them, or metaphors to hopefully show them my position. It always falls flat. What's going on? The Bible tells us what's going on. By you moving 
to try to explain your position of your personal biblical values to these individuals. It is like you trying to explain to a person who has been blind their entire life the color blue. It's impossible. Why? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4, through 4, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world has blinded him, blinded them to this reality. I bring you to this point to consider this fact, to know and to help you understand that the person that you are uh, talking with is not actually the one you are contending with. Do you understand that? The person you are talking with is not necessarily the one in whom you are contending with. Why? Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Jesus Christ told us that the ruler of this world currently reigns. But he had a lot to say about it in the Gospels, didn't he? This individual stepping out of heaven, born there in Bethlehem, growing up in simplicity, learning. At 13, he was already expounding on the Word of God there in the temple. But after being baptized by John, the very first thing that he experienced was to be tempted by Satan himself. This was it. This was the pay-per-view match of the world, history. This is it. This simple 30-year-old carpenter from Nazareth is dealing with Satan himself. And Satan says, if you will bow to me, all that you see I will give to you. Satan had the authority to do that because he was the ruler of this world. And Jesus said, no. And where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Adam fell to temptation, Jesus resisted temptation. That's why he's called the second Adam. What Adam and Eve allowed to occur there in the garden, the introduction of sin, the fall of mankind, the reign of Satan, Jesus defeated through the cross, through the burial, and through the resurrection that validated all that he did. I don't know about you, but when I see that contention there in that temptation of Jesus, and he was weakened, he resisted. And the power of the Spirit of God and he overcame where Adam fell. The kingdom of God is now at hand. We win. We win. And the ruler of this world after the resurrection of Jesus Christ was displaced. His throne was shaken, knowing that he's on borrowed time and that one day the individual who vanquished him is going to return for what he paid for 2,000 years ago. And he's going to bring it back to its original state. No more sin, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering. This is it. It's over. Though we appear to be losing the battle, understand that we've won the war. And we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory as Christians. 
So we must engage these conversations. And after his displacement, the kingdom of God began to compile its citizenry on this earth and will culminate in the second coming, but this led to a cosmic conflict. And Satan is trying to thwart every effort of God because the God of this world has blinded their eyes to the truth. And they cannot see the relevance of the gospel of Jesus Christ even though it is shown out of the darkness. Let me read for you again from 2 Corinthians 4. In this case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is it. Satan was defeated the moment that tombstone was rolled away and Christ walked out. Over. Done. Now we're just in skirmishes waiting for dad to come home. Come back and reclaim it all. But listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Because it talks about you and I who were brought from that position. And if you and I were not in Christ, we would see things just as the world sees things. Listen to what Paul wrote. And you were dead in trespasses and in sin, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Some of the most impactive words are so small, three-letter words, verse 4, but God. I love that. doesn't matter what hopeless situation we find ourselves in, we can apply those two words, right? But God had something else to say about it. We were hopeless. We were in despair. We were apart from God. But God, love it, man. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which He has for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that the coming age he might show his immeasurable riches for his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The God of this world, contending with the one true God. And the, their ideas are diametrically opposed to one another. So you can say it this way. If God says white, Satan's going to say what? Black. If God says light, Satan's going to say what? Right. Isn't it interesting that almost always the world will say just the opposite as the Christian value that you hold so dearly to? The God of this world is the antithesis 
of the great God himself. Though he is not God. Satan is limited in his power. He is not God at all. He's a fallen angel that fell in rebellion to God. So in all actuality, whatever the case may be, whatever subject matter it may be, understand that you're contending not with the person in front of you, but the God of this world. So that makes it not a battle of physical, fleshly nature. It's not even a battle of ideologies because their thinking has been created by their precepts and their experiences. The battle is with the one behind it all. The best thing that we can do for our friends that we engage with over these matters is this. Write it down. This is the conclusion. The best thing that we can do for these people, and I'm going to spell it out for you. P-R-A-Y. We need to pray for them. We need to ask God to intervene, to open their eyes and open their hearts to His truth. The answer to the objections that they give us, we can defend pro-life, we can defend traditional marriage, but in actuality, the best thing that we can offer a person who stands opposed to these things, who stands opposed to God, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The greatest message that could ever be leveraged in any circumstance. Let's understand that though there are varying different opinions on who God is and how morality plays out and what are the guidelines for ethics and so forth, the Bible clearly tells us that there's only two paths, right? A narrow one and a broad one. One is difficult. One is hard traveling. The other one is easy. And most people are on it. As Jesus himself said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is it. I think that we should stand up for traditional marriage. We do it in tact, love, and grace. We should stand up for the life of a child. How many children have been murdered since the Supreme Court ruled on Roe versus Way? Millions, millions of kids. I ask you, is now the time to be silent or is now the time to stand up? Not in pride or arrogance, but in humility. Asking the Spirit of God to work through us through the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who do not know the Lord. Now is not the time to retreat and to run and to hide. Now is the time to stand up. We've had an incredible American experiment, as I call it. And for almost 200 years, Christians enjoyed the popular opinion. That's changed now very radically, very quickly. Now we are looking like more like the entire world around us that is opposed to Christianity. Some places in a very, very dramatic and uh, violent way. It's not just here that we are experiencing great antagonism, but think of around the world as Christians are being slaughtered for their faith in Jesus Christ. Men, women, and children being dragged out and being killed simply because they love Jesus Christ. Think about that, please, folks. But Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. As they hated me, they're going to hate you. 
This is difficult to embrace. It's a promise of God that I've never seen on a t-shirt. I've never seen it on a magnet, on a refrigerator of any home I've ever gone into. Hey, I love the promises of God, and here's one that's very dear to me. As they hated me, they'll hate you too. But it is truly a reality. Let us not get swept away in the populace of our nation. Many Christians are finding themselves in crisis because it was easy to live as a Christian when everyone agreed with you. But now everyone doesn't agree anymore. To you I read these words from Paul himself. He says, See that no one takes you captive by the philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes lives. And as we reason with people, as we converse with people, engage with people, these are not issues that we can compromise over. And I'm going to tell you right now, things are not going to change simply by electing a new president. We understand that, right? Things are not going to change just because we infiltrate the public school system. Things are not going to change if we sit back and do nothing. God must work. God must intervene. God must change the hearts of people. For men must change before kingdoms change, as one stated. I leave you with these words this morning. Though there are many objections that we can specify and list for you this morning that people have, here is our mandate. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, or men or women who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And verse 11 is the verse that I want you to know and to memorize, 1 Corinthians 6.11. And such were some of you, but, again that word, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Understand that that person that we're talking with, that individual, that's who we once were. And though I'm trying to explain to them my Christian life, I'm trying to explain to them Jesus, it is as if I am dealing with someone who's blind. Why? Because the ruler of this world has blinded them. The only thing that can pierce that darkness is Christ himself. And that message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important. Understand that these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. They, they will suffer at the wrath of God and a separation from God for all eternity. But God has showed a way out. The darkness that engulfed Jesus Christ at that moment that he was on the cross is a darkness that waits for everyone who is outside of Christ. 
People don't understand that. Christians don't understand that. What they were observing as Christ was hanging there on the cross is eventually awaiting each and every person who is not found in Christ. And the first thing is darkness. Shrouded in darkness as the clouds moved in at the middle of the height of the day. And secondly, judgment as God poured upon His wrath upon the Son at one moment that included the Father turning from the Son and at that moment Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have Thou forsaken me? And then the last thing, death, as Christ dismissed His Spirit and died. That is what every person apart from Christ will experience for all eternity. The weight of darkness, the weight of judgment, and the weight of death. And that's where all of us were facing until the third day when he rose again. And Jesus says, if you will put your faith and trust in me, you will be spared those things for I have paid for them myself. And you will give me your old life, and I will give you my life. Perfect, righteous before God the Father. Just come to me. And I leave you with this. Christ did not die simply out of obligation. He willfully went to the cross because of one word, the love that he has for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whomsoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The love of God demonstrated in a manner that can never be erased by history or time itself. And if you're ever in doubt that God loves you, think that 2,000 years ago he went to the cross for you to demonstrate his love towards you. This is how we respond to these people as we share with them the message that is able to pierce the darkness, the blindness, and show them the everlasting light of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ.